You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the film podcast. My guest is a filmmaker who's been working in the film industry for a long time. He has recently completed the sci-fi film Moonfall with Roland Emmerich, which is due for release next year and has also worked on films Midway, Blair Witch and Independence Day Resurgence. Robbie Baumgartner, welcome to the film podcast. Oh, well, I'm happy to be here. Well, you're a working cine, having done a lot of camera and second unit work, including Argo, The Hunger Games, Indiana Jones. And then if we look back to your gaffing, you were on 8 Mile, 21 Grams, Babel, and There Will Be Blood. So there's a lot of experience there to bring into your first cinematography job. So tell us about that step up to DP and what your first job as a cine was and what you learned from it. Well, yeah, I started off in the business as a production assistant and quickly gravitated towards electric and lighting over camera, mainly because there wasn't an opportunity in camera. And once I got into electric, I realized at the time, sort of late 80s, once I got on my first real film set, that once they did the rehearsal, the director of photography spent an inordinate amount of time with the electricians and the grips. And I'm like, well, this this seems like a very good place to try and come at learning about cinematography because I quickly learned that a vast part of the job description or the job needs of a cinematographer were lighting the set. I didn't know how to go from that to become a cinematographer. I had dabbled in cinematography from a very early point in my career as an electrician and my path to becoming a gaffer. It's just that nothing actually stuck. They weren't very good, small level spec jobs, commercials, short films. I even did one full length feature and it was a $60,000 11 day full feature, which never saw the light of day. To answer your question, The first thing I did after I decided to stop gaffing was a film called The Exterminators. And it was a $2.5 million black comedy shot in Austin. For me, I had decided on a film. My last film was a gaffer called State of Play with Rodrigo Prieto as the cinematographer. I had done 8 Mile, Babel, 21 Grams, 25th Hour, And a couple of other projects, State of Play being the last one. And during the prep of that film, I said to him, hey, I think this is going to be my last job as a gaffer. He was shocked and nervous because we had an incredible relationship. And he thought that we could just go on for the next 30 years together as a team. But I was ready at that point to stop gaffing. And, you know, it's been been a journey the last 12 years I had to go back to the bottom in pay, bottom in jobs, horror movies, you know, work my way up. And the role of moving from the gaffing to cinematography, as you say, it comes from the experience that you've been able to harness and develop over a great many projects and many years of honing your craft. It's a natural progression to make on the ladder board, but that hasn't always been the pathway to becoming a cinematographer. I think traditionally in the film business, prior to film schools, cinematographers came out of the camera department. They they loaded film into film canisters. 
They organized equipment. They then started pulling focus as a first assistant camera. And if they had enough sort of drive, they became operators. If they kind of paid attention on set to lighting and setups of shots, they moved on to director photography. That was the path to becoming a cinematographer. Post sort of film schools becoming very popular, maybe in the late 60s, 70s, obviously in 80s, 90s, and now they're massively popular. You know, director photography has come right out of their cinematography program at NYU or AFI or any number of uh, great universities around the world internationally. Still, a lot come from operating, but in the last 20 to 25 years, there has been a significant shift in producers and directors realizing that gaffers and even some key grips in the United States make terrific director of photographies. And I, and I was right at the, the cusp of that first starting, but it's still a difficult transition. I think it's an easier one for an operator. You're a cinematographer at the moment on a big budget space film called Moonfall, due for release next year in February. The plot of this film is a mysterious force knocks the moon from its orbit around Earth and sends it hurtling on a collision course with life as we know it. Now, you're working with a director, Roland Emmerich, who brought us Independence Day, Godzilla, the day after tomorrow, 2012. He is a big action sequence director. There is a, a lot to keep up with as a cinematographer, I'm sure. So how much of a challenge has that been for you working with somebody like an Emmerich on such a big film as this? You know what? Roland is a, a force of nature. I think an incredible filmmaker for me, it literally is just trying to keep up with him. And he has an inordinate amount of energy and passion for filmmaking and has an incredibly good eye. If he wanted to at any point, he could probably say, you know what, I'm going to be the DP and the director. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he is in some ways relatively easy to work with, even on the scope that he works, because he comes in knowing what he wants. It's my job to interpret that and get it there in like the most efficient, open way that I can possibly do it. And also, you know, advance what he's doing. I started with him on Independence Day Resurgence, which was the 20-year anniversary sequel to Independence Day. And I came in as a, as a replacement B-camera operator. At that time, I had been shooting full-time doing features. But a friend of mine was one of the first ACs, and one of the B camera operators had to leave for some reason. And he said, Robbie, why don't you just come in here? I mean, you'd fit in perfect. It's, it's a little chaotic right now. It's a huge film. They need help. You'll come in as the B camera operator, and I'm sure you will all of a sudden jump into picking up scenes and inserts and splinter unit. And that's exactly what happened. By the time of the end of Independence Day, I had caught them up two and a half weeks behind schedule and was shooting simultaneous first unit talent scenes with dialogue with Roland directing two units, one live on a stage and the other video that I was shooting. And at the end of the film, he said to me, I do not ever want to do another film without you by my side. That's and a big compliment. It was a huge compliment. He also followed it up with, have you ever thought about being a second unit director? I was very, I was very amazed and, and felt honored that he said it to me. I said, look, I have no interest in directing. 
But if you ever need me as a cinematographer anytime in the future, don't hesitate to call. Second unit or first unit. And we went on to do Midway next because Marcus Froderer, who had shot Independence Day Resurgence, was not available for Midway. And he told Roland, hey, you know, just hire Robbie. You get along with him. And at that point, I had never done anything bigger than a $7 million film as the main unit DP. I'd done some big ones like Hunger Games and Argo and, and that. So second unit was second nature to me. And he gave me a shot to go from a $7 million film to a $90 million film. And we, we worked together like incredibly well. So what went through your brain when he is offering you that gig on Midway? I mean, that is, you know, one of those steps that it either comes along in your career or it doesn't. And fortunately for you, it came. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I haven't had a lot of those, to be honest. I, I've kind of climbed the rungs of the ladder of a career every step of the way. And I haven't gotten a lot of breaks that, you know, meet some young director and the next thing you know, you're off working forever with the next Spielberg. That, that Those things literally had not happened in my career. I was scared shitless, man. You know, mm. like, oh my God, this is huge. But I have a huge body of knowledge having come up through gaffing. I know how to run a 200-person crew. I've done as big a stuff as this as a gaffer or as second unit, but taking the helm as a first unit cinematographer means, you know, much more. You're not, you're not following somebody else's lead. You are the lead. And um, we got along famously. So you get that in the can midway, and then you find out that Roland wants you for this film Moonfall mm -hmm. as his cinematographer. So talk that through. How did that evolve? How did you get that offer? Everybody involved on Midway, his longtime producer, Harold Klosser, who has done every one of his films since his first film in film school, has been his main producer. You know, really saw that the relationship that we had produced a very efficient filmmaking uh, machine. And meaning that I complemented his style. I could be sort of a rolling whisperer and make the days go in a very efficient manner and get lots of setups that looked amazing. You know what I mean? So th there was a very good energy there. It was now a, a, a $140 million sci-fi. I had never shot anything close to this genre because most of my career has been pretty much straight up narrative dramas, serious movies, you know, a couple of comedies here and there. This one was, was certainly out of my wheelhouse, and I, I was nervous. But they had full confidence that I could pull it off. So as a cinematographer, you need to have confidence. And as you say, you've got this body of work behind you. But when you step on that set day one on Moonfall, and Halle Berry is looking at you potentially, <laughs> yeah. you start to think, oh, shit. I've really got to deliver here. So talk me through that first day, especially yeah. for our indie filmmakers listening. Yeah. What was it like that first day stepping on set? I didn't sleep a whole lot the night before. <laughs> Hardly surprising. Yeah, I was nervous. I think anybody in this business that is successful would be lying if they didn't say that most days when you step onto a set, you either have very little confidence you can pull it off, you're incredibly frightened, 
You may even think of yourself as a fraud and you shouldn't even be there. But that adrenaline, that fear, that anxiety, if it's in a containable amount of not an over the top where you crippled, that's what drives a lot of people in this business to success. It's not necessarily feel of fear of failure, but the willingness to put yourself out there on a limb in an unknown. Every film is unknown. Every film, every day on a film set is a snowflake. It will never happen again, and you will never encounter this same situation. That's not for the faint of heart. And I would say the first day when I met Hallie, who is just amazing, I was immediately hit with, you know, you have to light me a lot, right? <laughs> or her yes. makeup people said, she's not coming out here until there's a bunch of lights around the camera. <laughs> you know? And, you know, I had worked with a number of female actors at a certain age, you know, they're concerned. It's it's still a it's a, still a problem in this industry where men at the age of sixty, you can light them with a candle, and it's just a bunch of shadows and craggy faces, and everybody's like, "Oh my God, look at him! He's so good looking. He's such character." But if you do that to the same age actress, women and men will go, "Oh my God, she doesn't look so good." There is a real issue in our industry that there's a double standard. You have to respect that and you have to pay attention to that. And uh, no, I, I was nervous. The simple answer, I was nervous. That energy I used to propel me during the day. You know, I was talking to David Gribble, an Australian cinematographer, and he was telling me about how when he was lighting Sammy Davis Jr. in one of the scenes, it was so difficult. He said, short of actually putting a spot on him, yeah. you know, they had to find some really creative ways to bring the light up onto his face. Yeah. And, you know, it's a relevant problem, isn't it? Yeah. It's a yeah. relevant problem right across Absolutely. the board. And a, a lot of cinematographers, I mean, you imagine if you had not been in the situation where you're lighting different skin tones yeah. and your lead has a darker skin tone, that could be crippling for somebody that doesn't have the experience in that particular set of circumstances. Yeah. No, that's very true. I mean, I had the fortune in my career as a gaffer to work on a number of movies. I did a number of films with Spike Lee, where the cast was, you know, mix of, of African-American and Hispanic. And four years prior to this, I did Blind Spotting, which I think is an amazing, one of, one of my favorite films that I've shot. And the two leads, one was quite White and the other actor, Davi Deeds, was quite dark skinned. So I have been in that situation a lot. I think back in the day, I, Sammy Davis sound, uh, I don't know when Sammy Davis passed away, but I believe it was pre digital. When it was film, this was something that uh, usually had to be dealt with as giving, giving them specials, like giving them a spotlight, you know, giving them mm -hmm. some light that was specific to bring up their skin tone to a more balanced thing. I feel these days with digital, what you see on the monitors on set is what you have. And the ranges with which you're working with in, to, in terms of from black to white are adjustable enough that I tend to not employ that technique anymore unless you have to for a given circumstance. But I try and light them naturally uh, as I would any other character. And if I know the range is there, like their skin is not clipping, if you were to lift it later, it would be uh, so degraded that it would be bad. 
that you let it go so that the actors have a, the movement of freedom. You know, uh, you know, some when you have to put a spotlight on somebody, it's like, okay, you can't move from this spot. And I hate to do that as a cinematographer. I like to light spaces and think of the film set as as a stage for the actors to move about as freely as they want and the director to be able to shoot anywhere in that space. That way of shooting allows for the most potential best storytelling. I remember David Gribble telling me that one of the great things that he learned in terms of helping him with shooting skin tones was he used to do a lot of TVCs for tire manufacturers and shooting tires in a television commercial is really hard. Oh, and, I can imagine. Uh, and particularly if it's raining and it's wet and he took all of that and he was able to, you know, utilize that experience into what he was shooting in terms of people. Yeah, that's an incredibly interesting story about that. But again, it is all about ratios. And and again, getting back to this digital versus film, people shoot film and it immediately gets transferred to digital and then they do their digital color in post digitally. And if they're lucky, it goes back to film and is seen in a handful of theaters projected on film somewhere around the world. But essentially, it's still a digital product you didn't have the opportunity of power windows in post and the adjustments you can make now when it was strictly film to chemical processing. I think uh, you have to think about these things as a cinematographer and what tools there are in post in order to, to liberate the set, to, to make the set run more efficient. That's, that's a very funny story about the tires. And on Moonfall, what did you shoot that on and what was your lens set up for that film? This film was a fairly heavy visual effects CGI film because it's a space movie. Thankfully, Roland is very technical. Um, so he prefers to shoot the higher resolution format. Uh, so we used the uh, red Montrose uh, at 8K on a, a BisDivision chip with 240 framing aspect ratio. The size of the chip requires that you use you know large format lenses that will cover that chip. So you're utilizing the whole chip instead of punching in because it's it's not covering and you have vignetting in the corners. I love Panavision lenses. Panavision to me uh, are the, the, the benchmark in optics in the world. At the time of Moonfall, they were so busy that they could not supply me with an adequate set of large format lenses. I have a very good relationship with Airy. They were kind enough. And I don't know if I can say this, but I'm gonna, I don't care. I was the first first cinematographer that they allowed to use their airy DNA large format lenses on a non-airy camera. I was using the red Montrose, did not have access to the large format lenses that I wanted to use in Panavision. So I went to Airy and they were able to make that work. And I used their their DNA series lenses, which is a uh, older 70s, 70 millimeter large format uh, glass that they have rehoused into modern housing so that they're all the same size and the fast stops and, and everything. And I, I, I really love the large VistaVision chip with the older large format 70 millimeter glass. I think it's an incredibly beautiful combination. And you mentioned something like Moonfall. You haven't worked in sci-fi before to this 
this level, the visual effects of creating something like a, a moonfall is very labor intensive, particularly with all of the setups to make it look as seamless as possible. So how much of yeah. that meticulous pre-planning were you doing before you went into the shoot? And can you give our listeners a bit of a sense of, for somebody that has not taken on a sci-fi before, some of the things that you were most paying attention to? For me, I, I was nervous. It was daunting. A lot of the movie was pre-visualized, or you call it pre-vis, very rudimentary animated storyboards. So a lot of the elements were in there. Obviously, they, they're not going to be the final visual effects elements. From that, you have to extrapolate what kind of lighting that you have to do to to make it look like it's coming from an explosion that's happening in space or, or the moon crashing into the earth. The visual effects supervisor did a deep dive with NASA, with astrophysicists about what, what would actually happen if the moon lost orbit and came into the earth. So we, we based everything on what is known physics-wise and astrologically, for instance, as the moon enters our atmosphere, or a, a, a huge celestial body, the moon being the biggest one that's close to us, it would no longer be bouncing 5,600K sunlight as a white moon as we know it in the sky in its current orbit. As soon as it enters our atmosphere, there would be gravitational mass, friction, atmosphere, and it becomes a glowing, fiery orb, not a 5,600K lit white surface. So in these scenes that where the moon was already in our atmosphere, coming very close to crashing into the earth, our interactive lighting on huge stages that were 360 degree blue screen had to mimic that Kelvin of light, that, that color temperature of a light. So you know, where you would think, oh my God, the moon's so close, it's so big, it'd be this huge full moon, white full moon. Well, no, it was a huge orange, fiery globe. So, you know, you had to think about it in that terms, like what is the interactive quality of what is happening in the scene? It was daunting, but also incredibly fun. To a large extent, the, the CG team can get in there and offer real guidance and assistance for cinematographers. How much of that coalescing between the CG department and you as the cine were working hand in glove? Together, we quarantined in Montreal because it was right in the throes of COVID. I don't have that much knowledge about Maya or about these programs to build pre-visualizations, but I definitely sat in and discussed what I thought should be an element if it was going to be interactive, what it should be, where it should come from, so that it was something that I could produce on a stage to fit seamlessly into the final product. But Roland... Uh, you know, in all of his movies, even the biggest and the boldest of the stuff he does, he is very much interested in always keeping connected to the actors. So he does not want to spend too much time in a 100% CG world because I think he has an understanding. I have an understanding of this myself going to movies like that. As soon as the people are off the screen and they're flying around and things are exploding, in my mind, I check out. And it's only when I come back to a face, a reaction, an emotion, a connection with the character, am I involved 
truly involved in the story. So he, he has to have a number of big set pieces that have no actors in them, but he quickly cuts back to the actors. So a lot of it was, I would say at least 65 to 75% is live action. And how many days to shoot the film? We shot, uh, initially, we were going to do a 65-day schedule. Then COVID hit about 10 to 15% of the budget. Instead of rolling cutting the script or scenes, he just cut the amount of days down to 59, <laughs> which, <laughs> which just put a lot more on my plate every day. But uh, we, we, we got it done in 59 days. And talking of COVID, unfortunately, you ended up catching COVID. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it was not on 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 Moonfall. Uh, uh, it was on this film, Not Okay. I'd been vaccinated, had been very good over the course of a year and a half, and doing two two projects to not have contracted it. Our last day of filming, I was not feeling well. We tested, and, but we got through the day, you know, using all the protocols. And the next day, Saturday, I got the call that I was positive, and I would go into quarantine. We had two additional pickup days, which were very simple, establishing shots and whatnot, B-roll around New York City. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to participate in it. They hired, uh, the director hired a DP that she had worked with. We got him through it and they finished the film. You know, it it happens. You know, I, I don't think there's any film currently that doesn't come out unscathed. On Moonfall, we did very well. It was a 350-person crew, probably, uh, shot in 59 days. We ended up with, I think, 10 positive tests, none of which were in the A-zone, which shut us down. That's a testament to to all the hard work of the health and safety people that kept us safe and and the crew being mindful of the fact that they have to not only follow protocols on set, but be careful of what they're doing offset so as to not uh, get themselves exposed and, and have anybody else get exposed. And what's coming up next for you, Robbie? I've survived in this business by understanding that um, it takes a lot out of you and everybody involved in, in a film that I, I don't tend to be looking for my next job while I'm on the job I'm in. I do that job. I take time off. I regroup. I rest up. And so right now, currently, I'm reading scripts, uh, but I probably won't start up a new project until 2022. But I'm really looking forward to uh, getting on another project. Uh, the one I did in New York, Not Okay, was a young 26-year-old female director, Quinn Shepard, who is just a phenomenon. She wrote a terrific script about her generation and all of the really, really complicated field that millennials operate in, in this hyperactive social media world. So it was all about influencers and cancel culture and doxing and people trying to be popular on a medium that is just on steroids. And it was a very real, very poignant, where you are laughing at one point, moment and you're cringing the next saying like, oh my God, what are you doing? I felt very, very fortunate that out of a a slew of director photographies that she interviewed, that she picked me and uh, it made me feel really, really promising about my future as a DP, that I'm not just going to be doing multi-hundred million dollar event movies 
my whole career as a gaffer was dramas, serious, meaningful movies. I would like to maintain a balance of both because they both have a place in my career. I like them both. So coming back to that social media, was that a film or a series? It's a Searchlight Hulu project that primarily is slated to stream, but they are so excited about it that they want to get it done and in the can and ready for South by Southwest in 2022. And depending on how all the bits and bobs come together, they are excited to to make it a theatrical release as well. So it's not a series. series. It's 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 a a film. Social media is going to be the death of us, right? So it's it's a very poignant uh, piece of yeah. drama that sounds like what you've made is is very much laser focused, particularly around the pandemic and the way that a section of our community are behaving. Oh, uh, without a doubt, and that's why I did it. I thought the script was so good and Quinn so talented that I was just thrilled to be uh, be a part of it. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for coming on to the film podcast. I feel that a lot of our indie filmmakers, particularly those that are thinking about gripping around the electrics, cinematography, camera operating, visual effects, I think we've covered quite a bit there, are going to take something away from some of your thoughts and considerations. Just to add to that, I've been 33 years in this business. I started as a production assistant, did not go to film school. And I love this job as much as I did the first day I stepped onto a set. I come to work every day. And if they didn't pay me, I would still come to work. Luckily, I get paid quite handsomely now. (laughs) But I would say to anybody out there, if you're going to film school, go to film school. Right now, currently, internationally, globally, this is an industry that is dying for talent, for diverse talent, for women, for people of color, for indigenous people. Literally, we're dying to make this industry as globally diverse as we can. And there's so much opportunity right now. And I have met some of the most amazing human beings in the film business, working under warlike stress conditions. And what you find is the people that succeed in this business are just epically good human beings. And it's a great business to be in. I would, I would employ anybody that has any creative bone or likes movies and television to give it a shot because it's, it's a phenomenal career. And just coming back quickly to that social media film, were you surprised by the younger talent, perhaps with the storytelling? Because there's so many really great younger filmmakers coming through at the moment. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, this was a lot of cell phones, computers, TikTok, Instagram. We, we had to photograph. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of inserts we have to did because a lot of communication I'm part of that too. I'll call people and uh, I'll text more than I will call. So you had to communicate what plot lines and story points were happening on a computer and a cell phone in quite a lively way, if you can. So we tried to employ movement, shallow focus, lensing, framing, all of that to make this interesting and and to give it life uh, because it is the way we communicate these days. Well, thanks again, Robbie, for coming on to the film podcast and all the very best, too, for Moonfall coming out in February next year. Yeah, thank you so much, Greg. And don't hesitate to reach out again. I'd be happy to be on again and talk to you more. 
You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.